Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest. Today is the 19th day of August 2021. Last time we were talking about hemoglobin and oxygen transport, and I see no reason not to continue that discussion right now. <clears throat> so hemoglobin is a transporter protein. That's its particular function. We find it in erythrocytes. Erythrocytes are also known as RBCs, red blood cells. In fact, by mass, erythrocytes are about 35% hemoglobin. Protein itself is a tetramer with an alpha-2, beta-2 configuration, with each of the subunits being structurally similar to the storage uh, protein that you find in skeletal muscle that also binds molecular oxygen, known as myoglobin. Now, hemoglobin is sensitive to small changes in the concentration of molecular oxygen, and that's really thanks to the quaternary structure. Now, remember that both myoglobin and the hemoglobin have a porphyrin ring, also known as a heme group, which is an iron atom bound by several amino acids that allow that to become the oxygen-bearing prosthetic group of those proteins, both myoglobin and hemoglobin. Now, hemoglobin binds oxygen cooperatively, something I brought up last time. Now, here's a transport problem. <clears throat> the partial pressure of molecular oxygen in, in the lungs, which is where we pick up oxygen as we breathe in from unobstructed air, is about 13.3 kilopascals. That's the partial pressure of molecular oxygen, where one kilopascal is roughly equivalent to 0.01 atmosphere pressure. Now, in the tissues where oxygen is going to be released, the PO2, or the partial pressure of molecular oxygen, is approximately 4 kilopascals. So obviously, you need a transporter whose affinity changes from high at high partial pressures of O2 that allows for it to be picked up by the protein to low at low partial pressure of molecular oxygen, that would be uh, then facilitating delivery of the molecular oxygen. So we can talk about molecular oxygen binding in the high affinity state, the transition from low to high affinity state and to the low affinity state based on the partial pressure of molecular oxygen, again, measuring kilopascals. <clears throat> so what you find is you go from a hyperbolic high affinity state at very low levels of molecular oxygen. Those would be the kind that you might find in, for example, the tissues, to a conversion to more sigmoidal kinetics, where the there's more uh, molecular oxygen that gets picked up, relative to the amount of protein binding. And this finally ends up being a curvilinear response at the low affinity state. So very high affinity for oxygen, transitioning to intermediate, going to low affinity, right? And what we call this particular change in the curve is described best as positive cooperativity. So oxygen binds to individual subunits of hemoglobin, and that will then alter all subsequent affinity for oxygen binding in the adjacent subunits.
Okay, so you get the idea of what cooperativity is just by looking at the partial pressures of molecular oxygen. And again, I want you to keep in mind how this uh, is facilitated, right? So back up a little bit and remember that essentially we have to have a reversible protein ligand interaction where protein binds to ligand and then it is in a uh, equilibrium with the protein bound to ligand. So we say P plus L with arrows pointing in two directions to, in the part of the equation that then separates the product, which is PL, where the protein is bound to ligand. Now, when we talk about that particular sort of dissociation uh, reaction kinetic, we can develop what's known as a dissociation constant we call K sub D. So in that particular equation, P plus L goes to PL or PL goes to P plus L because it's reversible. The KD or dissociation constant can be described as a ratio of the protein concentration times the ligand concentration in the numerator and then in the denominator, the concentration of the protein bound to the ligand, okay? So a fraction of occupied sites can be described here, and that we're going to call theta. So theta is the ratio of the binding sites occupied divided by the total binding sites. And of course, that really gives you what? All we did then is describe an equation that looks like this, where on the numerator you have PL, concentration thereof, that's protein bound to ligand or hemoglobin bound to oxygen, right? And then in the denominator, you're dividing that uh, quantity by also PL, quantity PL, that is protein bound to ligand or hemoglobin bound to oxygen, but plus free protein concentration thereof. Rearranging that equation, you can then generate PL concentration is equivalent to P concentration times L concentration divided by the KD, because we just told you the definition of the KD, we just did a substitution. So then substituting in that particular ratio equation, PL with the first two equation intermediates, we rearrange and we get a term that basically says this, theta, this is what we're measuring now, the fraction of occupied ligand binding sites for hemoglobin to molecular oxygen, for example. Theta is described as the concentration of ligand, in our case, it is molecular oxygen, O2, divided again by concentration of ligand plus the K sub D. So what that ratio argues and tells us emphatically as we obtain the logic from it mathematically is a lower K sub D is going to of course uh, be associated with a higher affinity for ligand to protein or oxygen to hemoglobin. You understand. So theta again equals concentration ligand over concentration ligand plus KD. And if we compare theta, that, th that particular ratio, put that on the y-axis going from 0 to 1, and then on the x-axis, we just have the concentration of ligand in any arbitrary unit, let's say 0 to 5 to 10, 
somewhere along that curve is going to be a hyperbolic uh, increase in the amount of theta as we increase ligand concentration. And actually where theta is equivalent to 0.5, when that ratio of L over L plus KD is 0.5, that theta then is a mark of the KD, which you can then find on the x-axis by just running an ordinate line down from that hyperbolic curve. So that, again, tells us the following. At high ligand concentration, binding sites are saturated. When ligand equals the KD, the theta equals 0.5. That means that it's half occupied. And when the ligand level is 9 KD, when you get to the part of the curve that's starting to plateau out now near 1, that is going to be 9K sub D, which means the theta is equal to 0.9 or simply 90% occupied. So the KD is the concentration of ligand needed to bind half the binding site. The more tightly a protein binds to the ligand, the lower the ligand concentration required for half saturation. Therefore, we obtain that lower K sub D is going to be equivalent to a higher affinity. Of course, this is just simple mathematics, okay? All right, so now move on where we were before. Hemoglobin will exist in two conformations. There's the low affinity state we call the T state, and the high affinity state we call the relaxed or R state, where T stands for tense and R stands for relax. So low affinity T state can be described as a molecular structure that has low affinity, right? But that is an equilibrium and freely reversible equilibrium with the R state, which has the high affinity for ligand binding to protein. And you'll get a conformational change, which is associated with that cooperativity I just mentioned to you. So the T state, as it turns out, is far more stable. And unbound hemoglobin, we call that deoxyhemoglobin or deoxyHB, exists primarily in that T form. Now, when oxygen binds to a hemoglobin subunit, when it's in the T form, it will trigger that conformational change in adjacent subunits. Remember, they're going to be four total. And that will convert them all ultimately to the R or the relaxed form. So what you gra graduate to on that graph is a sigmoidal kinetic, which shows positive cooperativity. And that is basically a binding curve kinetic. So in the T state, the protein due to the ligand is called a puckered state, whereas when you go from the T state to the R state, you generate an F-type helix. And there, because of the association of heme to oxygen, because remember the oxygen is going to bind to the iron atom in the heme protoporphyrin structure, you're going to get a more planar um, protein-ligand interaction. So you go from a puckered state to a planar state during the increase in positive cooperativity. So that allows me to bring up this concept of allostery. Remember, you're going to have binding sites on these proteins. And when ligand binds, it can bind. You got four, uh, and, and with the hemoglobin, you've got four 
uh, subunits. So ligand will bind to one subunit and to another subunit, right? Each time that binding will increase the uh, transformation and, and ultimately the cooperativity of all four of the subunits to bind to molecular oxygen. So allosteri, which also in Greek is allosteros, which means other solid. And the solid here, we're talking about the solid protein. Allo means difference or different or others, other solid is a phenomenon in biochemistry where the binding of a ligand, or we can call an effector molecule, um, will occur to one site at a time and it will cause changes in the protein conformation. And throughout that conformational change, the binding properties of yet the next site on the same protein will conform. That's why we call it a conformational change. So you get allosteric cooperativity. So the ligand actually works at a site different than its normal binding site, or even at its binding site where it will, where it will bind in the native protein. But in this case, not only is the ligand binding and therefore eventually will allow for the transport of molecular oxygen by hemoglobin in the red blood cell, which is its function, but also it will act as an allosteric, positive allosteric regulator by positively affecting the conformational change in the four subunits. Don't you see? So let's think about the binding equation for hemoglobin then. Uh, the simplest way to look at it is if you just look at the special case of an infinite cooperativity. That would be where all oxygen molecules bind at once. So that equation would be written like this. Hemoglobin plus four oxygens, because you can only bind four, <laughs> will go to, arrow, arrow now going from the left to the right, to hemoglobin bound to O2, and then four of those. So it's HbO2 parenthesis four. For a protein with N binding sites, we can say then generically, P plus NL, N in front of the ligand, is going to go to PLN sub. So this is how the function occurs when you have a N binding sites, and we know how many there are in the case of hemoglobin, you're going to have four. So note, when we did this, we're assuming all or nothing binding with no observable intermediates like PL1, PL2, PL3, then PL4. Okay, that would be then infinite cooperativity as an assumption to the properties of the protein. You get the idea now about how we can look at the um, logical perspective how proteins bind and theoretical association from that logical interaction by considering binding efficiencies and by thinking about the difference between a contradictory association and a contrary association, which we talk a lot about in authentic biochemistry. So what's the basics of uh, oxygen transport? Oxygen binds, for example, to myoglobin, and it's that when that happens, it's just described as a simple equilibrium. So you have myoglobin plus oxygen goes to myoglobin oxygen, and then the KEQ, that, okay, that's the, um, essentially the constant for the equilibrium, the equilibrium constant for the reaction, is nothing more than um, 
MB times O2 divided by the product MB dot O2, okay? So myoglobin concentration times oxygen concentration, numerator, divided by myoglobin oxygen, now bound, denominator. So here, oxygen dissociation from myoglobin commonly, is commonly going to be described as nothing more than a fractional saturation, right? So it's kind of like saying uh, O2 is, uh, you know that O2's partial pressure is PO2, and substitution from the equilibrium expression will give that the oxygen binding curve for myoglobin will be just the simple hyperbolic function, which we described from that equation we just gave you above. So if you look at P50, and that will be the PO2, in which myoglobin would be 50% saturated, you would get a, where the P50 equals K, right? That's the equilibrium constant. So the hemoglobin function is unique, though. Here, oxygen binding and transport via, is via the blood from the lungs, where it's taken in, through the mouth and through the nose. And then once it's bound to hemoglobin in the lungs, it's, it's carried to the periphery, all other tissues. So this allows me to bring up a concept called the Bohr effect, B-O-H-R, named after uh, Niels Bohr. So CO2 is produced, of course, during respiration. That is, for example, the decarboxylation reactions that are also known as dehydrogenases, such as pyruvate dehydrogenase, um, isocitrate dehydrogenase, alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, succinate dehydrogenase, and malate dehydrogenase. Those last ones are all part of the tricarboxylic acid cycle, of course. We know that we make a lot of CO2 during respiration because we're oxidizing things like carbohydrate and lipid, particularly fatty acid. And of course, amino acids can be taken the same way through transamination reactions, yielding then the carboxylic acids that are in the TCA cycle, generating NADH and FADH2, like I talk about all the time. So carbon dioxide, now we're talking about carbon dioxide. So CO2 plus water will make bicarbonate plus a proton. So CO2 plus water will go to H plus plus HCO3 minus, okay? So therefore in tissues, What's going to happen because you created a proton there when CO2 dissolves in water, pH is going to drop. And what else is going to happen is CO2 is going to increase. Okay. So the inverse effects of the proton and the CO2 binding to hemoglobin on the binding affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen helps the hemoglobin bind the proton and CO2 and then therefore release the molecular oxygen in the tissues. And the opposite of that happens in the lungs. Okay, and so this is a pH-dependent response, where if you're again measuring theta on the y-axis, uh, and you're measuring the partial pressure of oxygen in kilopascals on the x-axis, as the pH shifts from 7.6 to 7.4 to 7.2, which are all physiologically relevant, you will take a sigmoidal curve and increasingly move it to the lower right-hand part of that graph. That is showing you then that ultimately the, amount, uh, the partial pressure of molecular oxygen 
is going to be higher at lower theta than it will be at a higher pH, which ultimately means hemoglobin will release the oxygen and pick up the carbon dioxide and the proton, which occurs because CO2 dissolves in water and it makes that proton. That's why it's pH dependent, you see. So the other consideration is an intermediate called 3-bisphosphoglyceric acid, or 3-BPG. Now, this is something that's been well studied at high altitudes. Some of you know that I used to work at the University of Colorado, where the Olympic Training Center is, and many of our prime athletes uh, will train at that higher elevation. So Colorado Springs is, is higher elevation than Denver. It's about 7,000 feet, 7,100, 7,200 feet in some places. So that's why the Olympic Training Center is there. Because what it will allow the athletes to do is build up their ability for maintaining oxygen tensions in the skeletal muscle at longer periods of time and therefore be consistent with being able to carry out their athletic performance uh, for a longer period of time, such as an endurance. So endurance training is big in Colorado Springs, and that's why the Olympic, tra the Olympic Training Center is there. Also interesting that there's a very famous army base there, and the army is trained there too for the same reason. So Bisphosphoglyceric acid binds to hemoglobin and it regulates that affinity for molecular oxygen. And indeed, at high altitudes, which of course would correspond to a low partial pressure of oxygen, what we discover is that the blood 2,3-bisphosphoglycerate levels increases. And commiserate with that, hemoglobin for uh, uh, affinity for oxygen decreases in the tissues, helping therefore the release of oxygen in those tissues at the lower partial pressures, such as at a higher altitude. You understand why that would then translate to greater endurance training. Right? Hopefully you're able to get that concept. So two phosphoglyceric acid can uh, react with uh, an enzyme known as enolase to make phosphoenolpyruvate plus water. So 2-PGA after enolase generates a double bond between the second and third carbon of that three carbon compound. Um, you will make then phosphonoenol, enol, right? And that ene is a double bond, pyruvate. So phosphoenolpyruvate is PEP. And that will give you a high energy group transfer, the phosphate that we just loaded on there, that ultimately can be used to make ATP. This is a reaction, of course, in glycolysis, right? So that's where 2-PGA comes into play. Of course, phosphoenolpyruvate then will react, as I just suggested, with ADP and uh, a free proton, a proton is going to be generated for the same reasons we just described. The reaction now that is a pyruvate kinase, and you will make then pyruvic acid and ATP. Okay, so that's a substrate level ATP synthesis towards the end of the glycolytic pathway, all anaerobic. So once again, PEP plus ADP 
goes to enyl pyruvate plus, and then ultimately to pyruvate. And that reaction where ATP is synthesized, that delta G is a positive 14.6 kilojoule to make at the ATP. However, the enol pyruvate, which will then spontaneously in the presence of proton form pyruvic acid, the G prime of that is actually negative 46 kilojoule per mole. So overall, the reaction of PEP with ADP to pyruvate and, uh, and ATP, okay, so PEP plus ADP goes to ATP plus pyruvate, that's the pyruvic kinase reaction. The overall delta G prime is negative 31.4 kilojoule per mole. And when you have a negative Gibbs free energy, that means the reaction moves in that direction, spontaneous in that direction, because that's free energy, and free energy we can put in the negative side. After that, what happens, of course, pyruvate reacts with NADH, uh, it can if it remains anaerobic. And lactic dehydrogenase will then make lactic acid and NAD. NAD, remember, will be then recycled into the glycolytic pathway for the glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate dehydrogenase reaction, which is about in the middle of glycolysis. The lactate then made in the muscle can be sent out of the muscle, enter the bloodstream, and make it to the liver, where lactic acid can be reconverted to pyruvate, and then onward that carbon can be used for gluconeogenesis. That's the Cori cycle that I'm sure some of you have heard of, C-O-R-I, named after two Italian biochemists, uh, male and female, actually husband and wife, who discovered that cycle. That is lactic acid generated in the muscle, translocated to the liver, utilized in gluconeogenesis to resynthesis glucose, synthesize glucose, and then that glucose enters back into the bloodstream and then acts as the biofuel for the muscle contraction subsequently. Again, the Cori cycle. Now, back to this whole idea about these, this interconversion of these uh, three carbon intermediates, okay? If you think about dihydroxyacetone phosphate, which comes off the aldolase reaction, you can isomerize that to the aldehyde, which is glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate. So that's an important reaction that's an intermediate in the pathway during glycolysis. Now, here's where it gets... Uh, where you need to really put your mind uh, carefully attended. If you take a half a glucose molecule, you're only going to make 1,3-bis PGA, not two of them, just 1,3-bis PGA. Now, normally, you get that substrate-level phosphorylation, ADP to ATP, and you make 3-PGA. 3-PGA converted to 2-PGA. We also just described that. 2-PGA, ultimately, when it goes through the PEP and goes through pyruvate, can go to lactic acid. However, 1,3-bis phosphoglyceric acid can also go through the enzyme pathway known uh, for its one enzyme, 2,3-bis phosphoglyceric acid mutase. So it'll take 1,3-bis phosphoglycerate and it'll make 2,3-bis phosphoglycerate. So mutase just moves around groups off on the carbon atoms. So it was 1,3, now it's 2,3. 2,3, remember, is the one that controls the oxygen tensions that allows for high elevation endurance training. Remember, now the 2,3-bis-PGA can also lose the phosphate, and that enzyme is simply called 2,3-BPG phosphatase. That would come right back then to making 3-PGA, which could then be used to make 2-PGA, which ultimately would go to lactic acid and complete the glycolytic pathway. So you can see the 2,3-bis-PGA is just a diversion of that carbon. 
It's just a diversion. But the diversion is very critical at high altitude because you make more of that 2,3-bis PGA. So hemoglobin is more likely to release its oxygen in the skeletal muscle. And this is necessary for the skeletal muscle to function at that low PO2 level, right? Which you get at higher elevations. So it's more efficient utilization of oxygen in the periphery. Okay. So if you've never heard that before, that explains why we do a lot of training at the higher elevations. Also explains what happens when you live in higher elevations and why you have more energy when you get to sea level because of your ability to get oxygen utilized in the skeletal muscle more readily until you re-equilibrate. Um, I'm going to stop here because we only have uh, about a minute left in this 30-minute run uh, on this platform. So I'm going to stop. I'm going to continue talking about 2,3-BIS-PGA, um, a little bit more about its kinetics and its binding efficiency. And I'm going to wrap that back around and describe that about partial pressures of molecular oxygen and unstirred boundary layers, which can occur uh, in the nasopharyngeal area if there's any obstruction to oxygen transport into the lungs or any obstruction of CO2 uh, being released and put back on hemoglobin after um, uh, that carbon dioxide is released then. Okay. All right. So that aspect of respiration, I'll go into more detail. This is just basic biochemical physiology. Again, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I'm doing authentic biochemistry because I have nothing better to do, which means it's a great thing to do. Saying, um, I guess, bye for now.